0: Welcome to the Brew Files from Experimental Brewing, our quick hit series where we focus on fundamental aspects of brewing, including styles, techniques, and recipes. More brew, more flavor, more stories, less time, still less ukulele. So far. Mm-hmm. You keep threatening, and we're 60 episodes in. Uh, I'm I'm waiting for 75. On this episode, we look to keep our cool as Mother Nature begins her ascent into her full, warm, showy glory. Remember last episode, we talked about how brewers used to have to stop brewing during the warmer months, giving rise to the idea of merch beer. But we have no such restrictions these days. So let's walk through how you can keep your beers cool while the sun beats down. And we're going to do that right after these messages from our sponsors.
1: Family owned Atlantic Brew Supply is the biggest homebrew shop in the Southeast. No gimmicks, no multinational corporate overlords, and no BS. Unique ingredients from local suppliers, including malt from neighboring artisan malt house Epiphany Craft malts and award winning recipe kits, including the Toll, Raleigh Brewing Company's GABF winning Imperial Oatmeal Stout. Plus, we've got pro level equipment and the best in cask supply equipment from sister companies ABS Commercial and Cask Supply. Malts, extracts, and more, all available by the ounce, an on site calculator to help you craft your best brew, same day order processing, and guaranteed two day shipping for East Coast customers. Get 15% off your first order when you use the coupon code BREWFILES at checkout at Atlantic Brew Supply. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth, and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com.
0: Explore the history of tart, fruity, and refreshing Goza-style beer with the latest book from Brewer's publication, Goza, Brewing a Classic German Beer for the Modern Era. Written by award-winning veteran brewer Val Allen, Goza includes 27 recipes including Sea Quench Sour from Dogfish Head Craft Brewery and Ruben Brew's 2017 Great American Beer Festival gold medal-winning Goza. Right now, Brewers Publications is giving Experimental Homebrewing listeners a discount on Goza. Go to BrewersPublications.com and use code EXPERIMENTAL to take 20% off Goza. That's right. You'll save 20% when you use code EXPERIMENTAL at BrewersPublications.com. One of the biggest challenges for homebrewers is keeping their fermentation under control. Uh, after all, we're dealing with such a large thermal mass. Water is dense enough as to start with. Wort is even denser. And active fermentation is an exothermic engine that just generates a ton of heat. I don't know. It may not be a literal ton. Somebody do the energy <laughs> calculations out there and tell me. I'm not going to do it, man. And even with all the things we've seen you know, challenged at the homebrew level you know, in terms of yeast health, or the importance of long schedules, or water chemistry, we still very strongly recommend that you have some form of temperature control. Because yeast will produce different compounds at different temperatures. they will give you different flavors, in other words, different aromas. And warm temperatures encourage the formation of esters, you know, those fruity aromas, you know, cherries and apples and whatnot. And those can be good, except for when they're in overabundance. But it can also produce what I think is one of the worst beer-off flavors that you can have, fusel alcohols. And fusel alcohols, I know some people will describe them as sort of a slick thing or a hot thing on the tongue. The thing I always get with fusel alcohols is that feeling that somebody's taken one of those precision screwdrivers, you know, the ones you use to adjust your eyeglasses. It's taken one of those little precision screwdrivers and just kind of put it at that point at the top of the nose, right where the eye comes in, and kind of just dug it in and kind of screw it around a little bit. If you can't tell, I really hate fusel alcohols and spend most of my (laughs) brewing life trying to figure out how not to make them.
1: I kind of relate them to the classic nail polish remover thing.
0: And these are important things. I do not like fusel alcohols. I do not think fusel alcohols have room in just about any style. I mean, like about the only time I think you can say that you can have some fusel alcohols and have them give a good character thing is some of your stronger Belgian beers or maybe even some of your stronger barley wines. But even then, when we tend to generate fusel alcohols at the homebrew level, Boy, do we really tend to generate them. <laughs> Denny, any other thoughts about why we want to keep our fermentations cool? I think that uh, those are probably the two main reasons for me right there. And as we said in the March beer episode, warmer fermentations tend to go a little bit squirlier. So the more cool you can keep your fermentations, generally the cleaner your beer is going to be. And, well, generally, I prefer clean beer.
1: Yeah, me too, man. Uh, And that's why, even with ale fermentations, I try and keep them down in the low 60s, Uh, Belgians, even, even that.
0: So, first rule about these fermentations and cooling, no amount of fermentation control is going to allow you to slow down the moving freight train that is a rolling fermentation. So, get your temperature down to where it needs to be first, or, as we like to do, below. So, as a reminder, Denny kind of alluded to it. When I chill my wort down or before I do my yeast pitches, I'll try and get the wort generally down to around 63, 64. Then I'll pitch, and then I'll allow it to rise up to wherever I need the fermentation to be at.
1: Yeah, I do the same thing, man. I try and cool it down to a little bit below my intended fermentation camp because uh, fermentation is exothermic, and it's going to bring it up.
0: Right, and similarly with lagers. You'd want to be down below your lager set point. I tend to do a lot of my lagers at about 50 degrees. So I'll cool the wort down to about 48 before I pitch the yeast. Again, keep the wort cool to start with, and you'll have a much easier time. Because if you try and take a wort, if you go and you look at older yeast package instructions, they'll always tell you, hey, you know, cool the wort down to, yeah, the 70s. You know, get get to like 72 and then pitch. If you're pitching your yeast at that temperature, you've already started yourself behind the eight ball, both in terms of ester and fusel alcohol formation, but also in the fact that by the time that you can move a five-gallon mass of wort down a temperature, you've got yeast actively pushing your temperatures even higher. So let's start with it. Every good beer, just like every good child, needs a home. So you need to find a good, appropriate place to house your beer. Uh, We tend to talk about dark interior spaces of the house, so a lot of people will use their closets or maybe a spare bathroom. A cooler or a cooler bag. There have been a couple of co- new cooler bags coming on the market that are handy for this. And then obviously you got the fun ones like a chest freezer or a refrigerator or a cool box. Or if you're really special, a walk-in. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And, and I have friends with walk-ins. But really what we're talking about is you want to have a cool and insulated space in an ideal world.
1: I can't even imagine having the space and the drive to build a walk-in.
0: Well, that's why you have friends who know how to do it.
1: (laughs) I guess that's true, but are they going to come over and build someplace for me to put it to?
0: If you're nice enough. (laughs) I'll have to try that. Now, before we talk about cooling, we do want to just take 30 seconds to talk about the flip side of it. Because if you're Denny, for instance, you live places that are too cold to actually always ferment. So you need some ways to do heating. The classic ones are using a light bulb inside of your insulated box. And just a a 60 to 100 watt light bulb generates enough heat. Now, of course, that's going to be harder nowadays that we don't have as many incandescent light bulbs. Yeah, right.
1: You know, I've even seen people uh, using a light bulb and they put like a can over it to uh, keep the light away from the fermenter. That just seems incredibly dangerous to me.
0: The whole idea is you're riding off of the waste heat generated by an incandescent. Light.
1: Oh, oh, definitely so. But what I'm saying is if you put a can over it, that's going to contain the heat. And I would think that that would uh, blow up your light bulb quickly.
0: So what a lot of people have switched to is they have the same sort of like that same light socket type of base. They have ceramic reptile heaters that screw into those things.
1: Yeah, that's what I use, man. I use a, a 100-watt uh, reptile heater bulb. And let me tell you, that thing can crank out the heat.
0: Also, there are things like uh, heat pads and wraps and belts. I really don't like the brew belt type idea that's on the market. Every time I've ever made a beer with those sorts of things, I vaguely feel like they're cooked.
1: Yeah, I I agree completely, man. Those things are too difficult to control and generally get the temperature up too high in my limited experience with
0: them. All right, so that's heat. And, of course, I live in Southern California, so I only have to deal with heating things. Well, never. (laughs) Uh, But I do have to do a lot about cooling, as do most homebrewers. So let's start in the category of basic passive cooling. So the easiest thing that you can do to cool your beer is nothing. However, we don't recommend that. Don't do nothing. Do something. Other thing is outside. If you are in a place where you have weather that does actually cause coldness to happen, then you can depend upon using your weather. Uh, Here in Southern California, I've had friends who use their pool so they'll go chuck their carboy into the pool on the steps and let the pool keep everything cool. And Denny, I know you've used the outdoors. When I started brewing, I pretty much
1: stuck the uh, the fermenter in a closet in my guest room. Uh, there was no heat in the room, so it stayed reasonably cool most of the time. When I got into making loggers, uh, I would do it during the winter when it was cool outside, and I could uh, set them in a tub of water uh, with an aquarium heater in the water to kind of maintain the temperature. And
0: that was that was actually fairly effective. So stepping up from just sort of that super passive mode of depending upon what your weather is, let's say that you live someplace hot. What a lot of people, oh, and importantly dry, what a lot of people have used in the past, and it's been recommended, I know it's in How to Brew, and I think it's also, no, it's also in Charlie Papazian's uh, Joy of Brewing, is taking a t-shirt, sticking it over the carboy, and sticking that in a pan of water, and then pointing a, a fan at it, a desk fan, and allowing that desk fan to essentially force the evaporation of the liquid from the t shirt and that would then in turn cool down the stuff inside the carboy. It's a very simple old school method. I've never used it. Have you, Denny?
1: No, I have not done that. Uh, I have used the tub of water method many, many times uh, where I put an aquarium heater in the water to warm it up or I put ice packs in the water to cool it down. Uh, very effective, a bit labor intensive. and that You got to check it a couple times a day. But I have never done the wet T-shirt method because, like you mentioned, that just seems too messy.
0: So, to your tub of water, I prefer to call it a water bath. It sounds fancier that way. Uh, but, yeah, I, I still use a water bath. And Right behind me, I have a 10-gallon keg in a husky tub filled with ice and water. Because, yay. And I'll still use either ice, or if I've got the gumption and the space in my freezer, which these days is relatively rare, I would take two liters, fill them up most of the way with water, and then freeze those and have, like, four of them going at a time. So, two of them would be in the water bath. Two of them would be refreezing in the, in the freezer. And that works pretty well as long as it's not blazingly hot. But the water bath is also really good because one of the other things that you want to do is it's not just about what temperature your yeast is at. It's also about the swings that the, the, the yeast will see. It's better in my mind to run a little bit warmer but keep the swings down low so that you only have like say four or five degrees of movement over the course of the day than it is to be down low but also swing up really high you know, where you have 10 degrees of movement. Water is, again, a great heat sink. So it's a good way to actually, you know, also steady out your fermentation swings. And then the other one, and also I've not done this one, but I've seen this talked about a lot online and people really do love it, is the Ice Cube type coolers from Igloo. You know, they're just the the squares with handles as opposed to like sort of the more rectangular ones that we use for our mash guns. And turns out they're just perfectly sized to fit a five-gallon carboy in them. As long as you drill a hole out for the neck. And so what you'll see people do online is put the carboy in the in the cooler, put a couple of ice packs or two liters of ice around it, and then close the lid so that the top of the airlock and the neck of the carboy are coming out of the top of the cooler. People swear by this, but I have not used it. Well, it's a clever solution. Uh, Denny, any other thoughts on passive cooling?
1: Only that it's effective if a bit of a hassle, but I did it for, oh, geez, probably close to 15 years uh, before I moved on to other methods that uh, were more expensive and more difficult. So if you're on a limited budget, you don't have the room for a chest freezer or another refrigerator or something, it is a really, really good method to use.
0: To kind of lay it out there, the pros of it, cheap, easy to set up relatively small footprint and better than doing nothing. The cons to it, potentially very messy, really almost impossible to keep it dialed in correctly. So that if you really want to be able to say, Hey, I I ran my logger at 50 degrees, it's going to be really hard for you to say that. And also really hard for you to keep replicating that.
1: But I think, I think people are way too hung up on trying to keep that ferment temperature within a degree or two. Like you said, uh, you know, some amount of swing is perfectly acceptable.
0: Also more to your point, There is more attention needed uh, during fermentation. And some of these, particularly the evaporative methods like T-shirt and fan, only really work well in dry climates. When I I grew up in Florida, T-shirt and fan would have just ended you up with a soggy (laughs) T-shirt. For more active cooling methods like what we're about to get into, you're going to need some sort of thermostat, usually like an override thermostat. The common one that you used to always find was the Johnson controller, which had a dial and a little pit tube with pressure sensitivity that drove the the thermostat. These days with everything moving digital, I think the most popular model on the market is probably the Inkbird. And where I'm standing, I've got a couple of InkBirds running my my fermentation chambers.
1: I I use one that's less well known. Uh, there's a company named Auber out there that not many people know about. A U B E R. They make a variety of temperature controllers for different things. So I have, I mean, I bought the TD 100 model, which I think maybe now they've upgraded to like a TD 101 or something like that. I am extremely happy with this controller. Easy to use. Uh, comes all pre-wired, so you don't really have to do much. So, uh, you know, just as an alternative, go uh, check out the website,
0: uh, A-U-B-E-R-I-N-S, like instruments, dot com. Some of our members in the Igor Corps who are working on other sort of override thermostat uh, technology, so keep an eye out for that. Remember that all these things basically come up with a, a probe, like right, a little thermocouple that, you know, says, hey, that's the temperature at this point. The fact that it's the temperature at that point means that the probe placement is Very, very important. So it's important that you know whether or not you're reading water temperature, fermentation temperature, or air temperature. They all impact what your settings need to be. Uh, You can do things like buy a thermal well, for instance, to stick the thermocouple down into the wort. But you do have to worry about sanitation with that. So
1: what I do is I take the probe, uh, for my temperature controller. I lay it up against the side of the fermenter, put a folded paper towel over the top of it and duct tape that. And I get an amazingly accurate representation of the temperature
0: inside. And you're doing that in carboys or buckets? No, you're using buckets.
1: Uh, Buckets mainly. Uh, When I ferment in kegs, I do the same thing. Uh, Carboys, I'm told it works just as well, although they insulate just a little bit more. Uh, But I don't use carboys, so I wouldn't know.
0: And then, of course, any of the professional devices that we're going to talk about usually have some sort of internal thermostat as well. So keep that in mind. If you're doing any active method, you are going to want to have a thermostat if you have to provide it for yourself. There are a couple of really good options. We'll include the links in the notes. Active cooling. We got to start with air because it's the most common way of doing it. And this is essentially the mini fridge, the fridge, the chest freezer with that override thermostat. Super common. All you got to do is go find yourself a fridge and buy one of these devices and you're, you're good to go. Other ones that you'll see out there, uh, Sunna Fermentation Cooler. That has been online for decades. It's been on there for a good long while. And essentially what it is, it's a a foam box that you build and you stick ice bottles into it and you have a muffin fan blowing across the ice bottles and you're making essentially an ice powered ice box. It's throwing back to earlier days of brewing when people discovered that you could make an ice box. And then you've got the sort of the bigger version of that, which is a cold box slash fermentation chamber. In the real world, a cold box is a big refrigerator that you can build up four walls anywhere that you want. And that's how brewers keep kegs and hops cold but it can be set up using a mini fridge to chill a small box that you can fit carboys and kegs into. Or if you're really ambitious, you can use a AC unit to power a much bigger box. So you can actually build your own professional sized walk-in cooler using an AC unit. You'll need to override the thermostat on the AC unit to allow the override thermostat that you buy to actually control the temperature. Otherwise, your AC unit doesn't want to run to get that cold. My good buddy Fletch, who you remember from the Brute Squad episode, has built several of these units into areas of people's garages. So, some of the garages here in Southern California, you'll have a closet in the garage. And he's just for like pool supplies or gardening supplies or something. And he's just taken that and turned that into a cold box using an AC unit. And not even a big AC unit, just a little window unit. So, it works perfectly well, but you do have to have some handiness to it. The, uh, these homemade boxes that you see, they're usually made of plywood and solid foam insulation, so like the nice big thick stuff that you're going to put along the walls.
1: Foam core. Foam core is often used.
0: Just remember that your job, the job of the box, is to protect that insulation, right? That's the thing that's providing you the ability to keep things cold beyond just having the AC unit. If you really want to have, or your fridge, if you really want to make sure that it's set and ready to go, you've got to make sure you're not damaging the foam. And remember, moving big heavy carboys and kegs is very damaging to foam, so protect your foam. Any other thoughts on the active cooling there, Danny? You know, I would say that it's a,
1: a really good alternative if you have the space for it. Uh, something like that son fermentation chiller that Drew was talking about is real, real inexpensive to build. Uh, it takes some effort, just like the tub of water method, but it's
0: it's very effective. And now the pros of this, of doing active air chilling, gives you more control. It's still relatively simple. You're not, you're not having to build a lot of very complicated parts here. Mini fridges, fridges, and chest freezers can be found relatively cheap. Sometimes Home Depot or an appliance store will have a sale, or if you pay attention to Craigslist or whatever other online market that you want to use, you'll often find people sort of dumping them out. If you live in a college town like I do, pay extra close attention right around graduation time. Suddenly, the streets are filled with mini fridges. On the con side of it, here's the big one air does not have the greatest heat capacity therefore it's not the best or most efficient means of cooling something down so usually you have to have your air space to be almost 10 degrees colder than what your target temperature is particularly if you're dealing with an active fermentation and it takes a while for air to actually cool down your liquid so again this goes back to our previous first rule which is make sure your wort is down to temperature first before you try anything else air is not the greatest in terms of cooling liquids much more effective but liquids messy the other thing that you also have to do is for any of these enclosed spaces, if you're making yourself, a, modifying a chest freezer, if you're making a fermentation chiller, you're doing any of this sort of stuff, you have to watch out for condensation. Condensation of, of moisture coming in from the, the air will create mold and mold is no good. Okay, so moving on, that's active air cooling. And I think that's where a lot of people end up. Other things that you can do, again, going to kind of an old school method, we're going to look at some immersion cooling. And in the old days, these were called atemperators. So the idea was it was something that you could use to temper the temperature of your wart. So you'll see some of these like liquid cooling circulators. So usually like ice water stored in a cooler or a fridge or even glycol. And we'll get more into glycol in a little bit. Stored kind of in a cold spot, like a bucket inside of a chest freezer. You can pump that with a submersible pump and up through these temporary recoils. So the most obvious homebrewed example that I can think of, or most obvious example for homebrewers, is the SS BrewTech FTSS system that they have, which is essentially a stainless steel coil designed to fit down into the wort. And then the cold liquid circulates through that stainless steel coil, takes heat out of the wort, and returns it back to the bucket to be cooled down. There's nothing wrong with just using... An even more homemade solution, which is to go get a stainless steel immersion coil. You can do that as well if you want to make your own system. And there is a long, long history of these being used in professional brewing. I remember going and doing the De Hoffman tour in Bruges in Belgium. And as you're walking over the old fermentation floor, you look down, and you can see the old metal tubs that they fermented in. They're open, and they all had coppery temperators dropped into them. So that was how they used to keep the work cool there. Other sort of immersion things, other than liquid immersion, you have, say, like uh, the, there's a company out there, Brew Jacket, and they use Peltier coolers. And Peltier is basically a, an electric way of cooling. It depends upon this big anodized aluminum rod to serve as a heat sink that goes down into the wort. And the heat is kind of sucked up through that rod and expelled via fans that are there to blow off heat off of a Peltier chiller, which is kind of a... A circuit that uses a, a nifty kind of side effect caused by current flow that pulls heat across a junction. And I'd get more into it, but Uh, science is
1: weird. Yeah, plus it doesn't really matter as long as you know that it works. And I want to point out that uh, that is just one part of the brew jacket system. The other part is the brew jacket yourself. A uh, large insulated bag that you put your fermenter in that that helps the rod control the temperature. Uh, I've found this to be extremely efficient. I love my brew jacket Immersion Pro system. I can easily do plus or minus 30 degrees from ambient temp with it, which uh, for where I live is plenty good enough to brew both summer and winter.
0: Yeah, they are kind of nifty things. And yeah, you're right. The The jacket itself is kind of a, an interesting cooler bag technology. It's very hefty. The only problem with Peltier coolers is from a power consumption point of view, they are – Inefficient, but uh, the brew jacket does work pretty well.
1: Yeah, it does. And the the nice thing about it is that it is a compact footprint, so it's not much bigger than your fermenter. So if you don't have the room for a chest freezer or a refrigerator or something like that, you can get pretty much all the benefits of one of those in a much more compact space.
0: Yeah, they easily would fit in a closet or a Oh, easily, yeah. So the, the pros about the sort of immersion style of chilling, it's fairly damn efficient. And it's very, very controllable depending on how you set up your thermostats and your probes. Can work with a number of fermenters that aren't necessarily custom built. Brewjacket works with all sorts of fermenters. And if they don't work with it, they can work with you to figure out how to, you know, rig it. And as Denny said, it is, they're very, very space efficient. It's also very easy to rig up a coil, not necessarily like the, the FTSS from SS Brewtech, but just an immersion coil. And put that in through a lid. Now, by the way, important note here: don't do this with a copper chiller. Make sure you do this with a stainless chiller because copper chillers will tend to leak leach copper into the wort and may really impact your beer and make it end up tasting bloody. On the con side of it, if you're you're sticking something into your fermenting beer, so which always makes me feel a little woogie. So you better be able to trust that you can clean it and sanitize it well. So particularly if you look at a coil. You can see that you get all those nooks and crannies where things can get trapped on the coil. So make sure you take your time if you're doing this, that you clean those things well and that you sanitize them well. The brew jacket guys provide plastic sleeves, actually, because you can't use um, an acid-based sanitizer like Star StarSan or SaniCleanite. You have to use iodophor, Or you can use one of these pre-sanitized sleeves and use that to protect everything. Other cons, with the liquid immersion units, you can possibly leak coolant into the beer. Contamination is a no-no. We'll talk about more, this more later. And in comparison to, say, air cooling or even the passive cooling, there's many more moving parts. Now you have pumps involved along with your, your thermostats, so you have to be very careful about that. On the Peltier cooler side, they can only pull the temperature down so far below ambient. As Danny pointed out, the brew jacket system will do a negative 30 from ambient. But if you're me, and I brew in a garage in Pasadena in Southern California, my garage can hit 120 during the summer.
1: <laughs> so 30 degrees is not going to do you a lot of good
0: yeah I mean I can do 90 which means I can do a quake strain I can probably do a saison strain but I'm not going to be able to do anything any sort of a normal beer and as we said the brew jacket's rod has to be sanitized correctly or protected to avoid stripping that uh, coating that's on the on the rod and that's not uncommon so any other thoughts no man I, I think that uh, you pretty much hit the nail on the head there alright and finally we have to go and uh, get to the idea of Active, non-immersive cooling. And so this is the world of jackets and jacketed fermenters. So relatively new to the world, like we talked about uh, the heat pads and the heat wraps earlier, there are people who are now making cooling jackets. So I first ran into these in the theme park industry because they use them to keep performers cool inside of suits during the summer. But these things like uh, the cool zone is the big one I found. They're designed to wrap around your fermenters. They're designed to have glycol or chilled water uh, circulated through them. My one worry about them is, yeah, they're adaptable to how they wrap around your carboys, but I'd be worried about the air gap between the carboy and the jacket. But still, it's a very clean solution that doesn't require you to have something that's pre-built. Now, pre-built side, the ultimate luxury, just like the pros have, is a jacketed fermenter. And what we mean by that is the fermenter itself is now dual-walled, and either the whole of the fermenter or a part of the fermenter, like a belly band, is hollow to allow you to circulate cool liquid through it. Again, chilled water or glycol. And then they have thermocouples in them to be able to allow you to then control what your temperature setting is. So this is where we get to talk about a new toy that we have our, our hands on we
1: uh we got lucky enough to do some beta testing for Grandfather. They make a jacketed conical fermenter. Uh there are a lot of conical fermenters out there for home brewers, but not all of them are jacketed. So that's really cool. Uh with this particular one, uh, the heating is built in. And you can also get a water cooling kit for it where you uh, submerse a pump in like a a cooler full of ice water, hook a couple of hoses up to the grandfather, run cold water through that jacket to to keep it cool. Uh We got lucky enough to be beta testing a new unit from them, which is a glycol chiller, which is extremely hip. It should be available here in the U.S. not too long. Uh, hopefully, Uh They say not too long after we get done beta testing, so I would guess in the next few months. But it is extremely hip because you hook it up to the fermenter. The fermenter has built-in heaters. You set the temperature on the fermenter. You can even program in a step fermentation schedule. And my goodness, it just keeps it right there. It is really, really a stunningly cool unit. It's something, you know, you can obviously make beer without it. And Drew and I have both made a lot of good beer without having this. But if you have the money and the desire for some cool toys... This is definitely a cool toy.
0: Both of these are, to my mind, these are the ultimate idea for how you can be you know, more like the pros and or at least more controlled and be more flexible. That glycol unit that Denny just talked about, it's designed to handle and control four different fermenters at once. So kind of nifty.
1: Yeah, that, that's really cool. You can hook four different fermenters up to it and ferment each one at a different temperature.
0: Now, the pros, very little in these jacketed setups touches the wort. Usually it's a thermocouple in the case of something like, say, the cool zone, where you want to make sure that you're reading the work temperature. It's pretty much what the, the pros use these days. And you set it and can kind of forget about it as long as you're using something like glycol with chilling involved in it. So the fancy units like that grandfather system will even actually let you program the steps so that you can say, hey, on day three, make sure that you rise to you know 65 degrees and day seven, start crashing to 50. And it's really kind of nifty to do that now the cons as you would expect these jacketed fermenters since they are sort of a custom small market solution they are not inexpensive <laughs> no they are not inexpensive yeah so you need you need to actually really seriously think about it what you're doing there you could also if you're not careful these solutions can be so efficient that you could actually freeze part of your beer
1: and i and i, I kind of did that i uh, went to do a tube dump in mine the other day and the tube in the bottom of the fermenter was about half frozen uh, i was lucky that i managed to get it to come out
0: though and then also because there are more moving parts in these systems they can be possibly more prone to failure so you do have to be aware about this it's a more complicated solution but man if you can do these things if you have that set of gumption uh really kind of cool really great ideas so now we've talked a little bit about it. We've kind of danced around it. We've been talking about chilled water and chilled glycol. So let's talk a little bit about those chilling fluids that you're going to use in either the immersion in temperators or the active jacketing cooling. Water or ice water, you store it in a fridge to maintain the heat and or to maintain removing the heat. And you use a submersible pump to in a bucket to move the cooling water out and in, into whatever solution is that you're using. So a stainless steel coil and a temperator a jacket, something like that. And then it returns back to that bucket and you can, you know, use that to keep things going. If you're using ice, you, know, you if you're like, if you're using it in a cooler, you may need to top the ice up every day. You might even need to top up the ice every day. Even if you're in a chest freezer, you know, you're going to be putting heat into that solution. And I've seen many, many designs for people using this and doing this. It's not very complicated to put together. Uh, you just need to basically plug your pump into an override thermostat and then have that thermocouple into the wort, or somehow measuring the wort temperature, and it will kick the pump on and off automatically. That's the very simple version of it. Yes, there are much more complicated methods of controlling that you can do, but we're homebrewers. Let's keep it simple. The other one, and this is very important, we've talked about glycol. And it's very, very, very important that we make sure that this is very clear. When we talk about glycol chilling, we are talking about using propylene glycol, not Antifreeze. <laughs> really? Antifreeze is ethylene glycol, which, yes, it's called glycol, but don't ever use a regular antifreeze in any food application. Ever. Because, again, remember, even with the jacket and fermenters or the temperatures, you have a chance of coolant leaking. If you consume ethylene glycol, it does very, very bad things to you. And it's a way of poisoning. And there have been a lot of people killed by it. I've had a dog killed by somebody pouring antifreeze in a place where my dog could get to it. I've, and you've seen plenty of murders being done with ethylene glycol because it's sweet tasting. So again, do not use ethylene glycol, use propylene glycol. It's, it's used all over the place in the food and cosmetic industry. And it's also sometimes sold as environmentally safe or eco safe antifreeze. Still don't use it. Use the food grade stuff. You dilute it down with water. And what it actually does is it allows the water, or this glycol water solution, to get even colder than water would on its own, right? You know, you get water to 32 degrees or zero degrees Celsius, it freezes. And as wonderful as that is, it's really hard to pump ice around. <laughs> Very difficult. So you really want this stuff to stay stay fluid. So propylene glycol allows the solution to effectively get much colder, which gives it more heat capacity. So propylene glycol, usually you dilute it down, right? Because you're not going to go for pure propylene glycol. And like on the grandfather glycol chiller, they recommend a 33%, 67% solution, 33% glycol, 67% water. Different glycol chillers will have different recommendations, but that's usually about in that area. And what it does is it allows the glycol solution to get down to about one degree Fahrenheit. And so it has a lot of capacity to be able to take heat out of an active fermentation. You can go and buy independent glycol chillers. So the grandfather thing that they've put together is very snazzy and and very wonderful and built with homebrewers in mind. But if you want to, there are glycol chillers that you can go buy off of Amazon and rig up your own solution. Uh, I don't have a lot of experience with that, so I can't give you the guidance on it. Denny, I don't think you do either, right? Nope, I wouldn't even try. The best way to to handle glycol, you know, you can do the bucket in the freezer thing, but really the best way to do it is with a dedicated chiller. So SS Brewtech has a home unit. As we said, Grandfather has one that's currently out on the international market, and Denny and I are beta testing it for the U.S. market. And if you're feeling handy, you can go and buy a dedicated small-scale glycol chiller. But you got a tinker, you got a futz, there's flow issues, there's things about how far you're taking the chilling down. There's a lot of hard work in there. Uh, and you'll want to consult with somebody who knows what they're doing, because I don't.
1: Yeah, I mean, if you want to go this route, I would say just sit back and chill ha ha, ha until this uh, whole system is available. Or pick up the fermenter now, do the water chilling method, and add the glycol unit later.
0: But the important part is remember that there's lots of different ways for you to get your beer down to temperature and keep your beer at temperature while fermenting. Many, many of them are cheap. Some of them aren't so cheap. You can always have fun doing this and exploring new ideas. Denny, anything we've left on the table about chilling?
1: Well, you know, I I think that we just want to emphasize once again that there are many, many ways you can control your fermentation temperature. And the big point is to pick one and use it, and it will really improve your beer. I would say that it may be the single largest improvement I've made in my beer. Uh, I increased my beer quality, and I really decreased my Turnaround time by being able to control the temperature so accurately.
0: Yeah, it turns out your yeast play better when they're playing in the right temperature. Yep. Thank you everyone for joining us on another episode of the Brew Files. We hope that you enjoyed this look at how to keep your cool. It's a whirlwind tour, we know, but as homebrewers we're fortunate to have many options, both simple and complex, to approach our chilling needs. There are so many, in fact, that I'm sure we've forgotten probably a good half dozen. What do you do to keep your beer cool? Let us know. Now, remember, if you have show ideas, styles, brewers, techniques, ingredients, feedback, etc., you can drop us a line at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. You can reach us at Denny at experimentalbrew.com or Drew at experimentalbrew.com. You can find us on Twitter at EXP Brewing, on Instagram, on Facebook, on Reddit, and just about every homebrewing forum out there. And of course, you can always find us at www.experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts. Click the AHAbrewswag.com code word experimental. Amazon, Brewer's Friends, or BYO links on the website, and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is... It is called Wings of Rescue. They are an all-volunteer 501c3
1: organization who flies dogs from shelters where they're likely to be euthanized to no-kill shelters, and in my book, that's about the best thing you can do for your
0: karma. It's noble for the pups, so get out there and give us a buck. And Brewer, until next time, to always brew wacky or brew experimentally, and the brew is out there. The American Homebrewers Association, a community of more than 45,000 individuals who share a common passion beer. Since 1978, the AHA has promoted and advanced the most delicious hobby in the world, providing brewing resources, supporting homebrewer friendly legislation, offering exclusive member deals at breweries and homebrew shops, and hosting one of a kind events like HomebrewCon and the National Homebrew Competition. Join your beer loving peers at homebrewersassociation.org.